Welcome back to the Shorter Podcast, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism where two pastors confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnenweber. Well, it's interview day on the Shorter Podcast. We are very excited because this is a first for the Shorter. This is the second Orthodox Presbyterian minister that we have interviewed in the same week. We just interviewed Carl Truman. That was fantastic. And we have every expectation that this is going to be even better than our previous interview. So we have Dr. Chad Van Dixhorn of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia speaking to us today on the history and background of the Westminster Confession of Faith and some on the Shorter Catechism. Dr. Van Dixhorn, thank you very much for being here. I'm delighted to be here and even more delighted with this uh, this this wild expectation that this will somehow be an improvement on uh, on Carl Truman's interview. You know, we can we'll let the we'll let the listeners decide, and then you and Carl can have you know a, an arm wrestling match, a rock paper scissors shoot set up between yourselves. So, um, well, Doctor Van Dixhorn, let tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Tell us how that came to be, and tell us how you came to be a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. Well, that's that that that's a tall order. Let me try and do it quickly. So, so when our I belong to a church splint uh, uh, in in my late teens. So, you know, a church wasn't really getting along. So we started a new one, um, and uh, it was it was an independent church that that didn't really work so well. So our pastor decided that we needed to join another denomination, and uh, or join a denomination. And he 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 looked all over the place, kind of subscribed this is pre-internet uh, to to different church magazines, and decided on the OPC uh, for sort of the worst possible reasons for joining a reformed denomination. Uh, he he went through New Horizons, and back at that time, uh, he thought that there were more pictures of women wearing dresses and more quotations from the King James Bible than other denominational magazines. What's worse than this as a logic for joining the LPC is that he explained this to our little congregation. We all kind of nodded our heads and said, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds right. So that's how come I'm in the LPC. Uh, short, short story, t- t- turns out that, you know, people like the ESB and women don't all wear dresses, but, but uh, ha- happy to be here. Uh, so this was in Canada uh, back in the, oh boy, I, I suppose back in the 90s. Uh, no, back in the late 80s. Um, and uh, eventually I felt called to ministry. Uh, the eldership of my church uh, agreed uh, somehow. And, and I was uh, sent to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia as a student. So I uh, went there uh, for a few years, uh, met my American wife from Princeton, New Jersey, uh, and uh, yeah, did, did a little extra study in Cambridge, came back. I, I wanted to be a pastor. I was a pastor at, in my final years in Cambridge. And then again uh, for, oh boy, uh, let me see. I can't do the math, but from 2008 to 2015, uh, or tw- 2015, uh, I served as a pastor in Virginia. Uh, and then was also teaching at RTS. So so, so it was, a, it was a, a, I was not a math major. So I, I did... Uh, Eventually, it grew to be about uh, five sevenths time at RTS, five six times at my church, and then I was one sixth of my time was supposed to be spent writing, uh, and uh, that was uh, that was enriching but not sustainable. Eventually, I went full time to RTS, 
And then uh, Westminster and Philadelphia asked me if I would come teach there. And my in-laws live near here and uh, Westminster made a case that it might be nice to give back to my uh, to my alma mater. And so we ended up moving to Philadelphia, which is, which is where we are now. How was that? Was that? I liked it. Enough? Those are, those are easily the most interesting reasons for joining the OPC that we've heard to date. <laughs> yeah. Top, top that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, God bless the interesting road that led straight to the OPC. So Dr. Van Dixorn, Clearly, you know, you grew up in something of an independent congregational context, we assume. And then when did you really first get in touch with the Shorter Catechism? Was it around that time that you joined the OPC or had you kind of been independently? You had a Westminster Confession of Faith, you know, stashed under your bed somewhere. Um, Talk to us about that. Yeah. So so um, let let me see. I think I was uh, so we belong to a three forms of unity church. Uh, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, Canons of Dort, and the, 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 uh, the, the Belgic Confession in, in no particular order. Uh, and that was the denomination that we belonged to. And then when we split, we stayed with the three forms of unity. But as a small child, my, my family sometimes camped, or regularly camped in northern Ontario, sometimes uh, near a place where there was a free Presbyterian uh, congregation. Um, and uh, my mother became a Christian sometime. We were kind of nominal. We were a church-going family, but she became a self-conscious Christian in my youth. And, and that meant, you know, when we visited a church, now we had to attend their Sunday school classes as well. Uh, and this church had a catechism class. And I remember dimly, but I remember as a young lad going to this church feeling really awkward. It was a small church. They had a bunch of kids sitting on a bench answering catechism questions. And my mother sort of pushed us kids over there and we had to sit down on a bench too. And, and, and the minister, you know, not knowing who we really were said, so anybody know what the chief end of man was? It is. And he kind of looked over at, at the Van Dixorn uh, row and we did it. Uh, we did not know what the chief end of man was. And the other Presbyterian children were sort of horrified that we didn't even know why we existed. Uh, so that was my first introduction to the, to the shorter catechism. Uh, and uh, and I, I liked it. I mean, it was all the answers were short. I mean, compare that to the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, you know, this is a clear win. And, but, but I didn't really start studying it until we became until we joined the LPC and the elders asked me to teach the kids catechism. So I, uh, I cracked open my shorter catechism and uh, used Thomas Watson as my guide and Thomas Vincent and any other Thomases I could get a hold of and just loved teaching it. I liked the scripture proofs. I, I, I liked the pithy statements and I liked the, the many good Presbyterian aids that there were for the shorter catechism. So a somewhat traumatizing first experience, but oh, delightful. Absolutely. Ab- absolutely. But I recovered in my teenage, late teenage, early 20 years. Yeah. yeah. You've, you've really rallied. You've done well. I, and I, I try. So let's now Carl Truman kind of dropped a, a whopper on us. He said, you know, I kind of prefer the Heidelberg catechism in a number of ways because it's more pastoral. But let's ask you your favorite shorter catechism <laughs> question. Yeah, maybe 38. 
but I, I mean, I, I, I could cast all over the place and, and just appreciate many different things. But 38 says, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? Um, and uh, I, I love thinking about, uh, the, of course, the, the main benefit we receive is Christ himself, right? But, but, but just thinking through this, the, the, uh, the shorter catechism thinks about the different liabilities that come from being outside of Christ, mm. uh, all the, the sort of the, the, the misery uh, the, that accompanies, uh, the misery that attends, uh, you know, this life and the misery that comes at death, the misery that comes uh, at the last day. But then they correspondingly think through the benefits that we receive in this life uh, at death, at the resurrection. Uh, and there's this sort of climax, question 36, 37, 38. And I just love thinking about that. The resurrection believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. This is kind of the, the final fruits of the voluntary condescension that, 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 that God intended all of this for us and and this is what we receive from Christ. Uh, I also I also appreciate the the nuance of question thirty six. What benefits in this life to either accompany or flow from justification? You know, if you're thinking about the gospel in terms of being united to Jesus Christ, then you think about all the the benefits that are sort of aspects of that union. Accompanying language is quite good, but you know there are also reform people that think about kind of benefits that flow from justification. And, and you know, this question kind of accommodates both of those different perspectives on how we're blessed in Christ. Uh, I don't know if that made sense to you, but, but there's just a real nuance here that's quite accommodating, very useful in the way in which the questions are teed up, starting with 36. Uh, yeah, no, that's good. Amen. 38 was Randy Greenwald's favorite. Yep. Did did uh, Carl Truman say thirty eight with his favorite? Do I remember that correctly? No, he was he was number one. Yeah. But then I think he mentioned thirty eight. Yeah, he did. Thirty eight might be a front runner at this point. It's it's usually thirty eight or justification of uh, the Presbyterians, you know, favorite favorite one. So thanks, Doctor Van Dixhorn and Tommy's uh, got got our content questions for you. Yeah. So. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and touch on the Shorter Catechism. Uh, it feels like some people believe that the catechisms and the confession, like, you know, drop from heaven. You know, there's just like this almost the Book of Mormon-ish kind of, you know, you know, it just it's just with us as Presbyterians. So first, you know, why... Golden plates? Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, so... Uh, so first, why w- were the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms creative, uh, created? Uh, yeah. Some of us in the Reformed tradition know of other documents, uh, like the Synod of Dort with the Doctrines of Grace. Uh, but what, what were the assembly responding to? Why were they together? And, and why was these documents written? Yeah, so, so good question. Yeah, it's only recently been discovered that they did not drop directly from heaven, yeah. which, which then creates sort of the, the kind of complicated question that you're asking. Yeah. Um, so so the, these documents were written in the middle of a civil war. 
And the Civil War had economic and political causes, but also had uh, religious theological causes. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, armies deal, deal with some problems, uh, legislation deals with other problems, but, but, but parliament, if it wanted to end the war, knew that they needed to address the kind of theological and ecclesial things. And so they, they, they as it were, kind of hired this think tank. They appointed uh, 120 ministers to, uh, to attend a meeting where they would revise, and then later they decided to create new documents for the church, uh, at first for the Church of England, but then, but then uh, starting in the autumn of 1643, when Scottish members joined the assembly as, as commissioners from their church, uh, they end up creating documents, new documents that were supposed to be uh, for, the, for the Church of England, Church of Scotland, and the, the Church of Ireland. So the idea was create documents that solve the kinds of problems that followed the reformational documents of the Church of England. Uh, the 39 Articles, make it clearer that Arminianism is not allowed. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer, let's, let's replace that with a directory for worship that doesn't kind of bind consciences with little extras uh, that were found in the Book of Common Prayer. Oh, by the way, the Book of Common Prayer contains an ordinal uh, that cements the practice of a, uh, of a government through archbishops and bishops and archdeacons and deans and chapters and, and priests and so on. Let's just replace that with a, a form of government uh, that emphasizes the, the parity and plurality of elders. Uh, appeals to presbyteries and synods and so on. So, 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 so the assembly, through a lot of hard work and intensive debate, uh, replaced the, uh, the, the church's uh, 39 articles with a confession, replaced its very, very, very short catechism with a shorter catechism and a longer catechism. Uh, even the shorter is longer than the, than the Church of England's catechism. And then it replaced the, the, the Book of uh, Common Prayer with the kind of DIY uh, guide to worship uh, that the directory for, for, uh, for public worship is. And, and then again, finally replace the ordinal with a directory for church government. So just a comprehensive overhaul, uh, which none of the Episcopalians liked. Uh, so it didn't really solve a lot of problems. Uh, it, it, it solved problems for Puritans. Uh, it solved problems for moderate uh, ministers, but it didn't solve any problems for, for, for Episcopalians. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, that's the quick story. Maybe too quick, uh, maybe too long. Yeah, no, we can, we'll, we'll point our listeners to some of your resources, maybe even your recent article with Desiring God, uh, just to give them more insight. But can you also give us insight of how the assembly actually worked? You know, some of our listeners might have heard good and bad stories of Presbytery. So is it like that? Is it different? You know, how do, how do they go from these articles to these confessions? And yeah, clearly yeah. it took a long time. So, um, yeah, that? yeah, it took a long time. It was pretty intense for the first five years. They had two weeks vacation, uh, and, and and because a war was going on, there were still members who protested uh, taking any break at all. Uh, so, so the assembly was pretty chaotic. They they had a a, a prolocutor, a a speaker moderator, uh, who was a learned man, England's Augustine, a guy named uh, William Twiss. Twiss. Uh, 
loved the discussions, but did not interfere very often to impose order. And so if more than one person was trying to speak at the same time, uh, the, the man whose name was shouted the loudest got to speak, uh, which is just not a great way of running a meeting. Uh, and, and often as the scribe tries to record a speech, he writes down a guy's name and scratches it out, then writes down another name, scratches it out, because he's not sure who's in the end going to get to speak. And often the, the first little bits of speeches are missing because of the hubbub, uh, because more than one person seeking the floor at one time and the moderator's not really moderating. So in that sense, a little better than a Presbyterian meeting. Um, <laughs> so, so there's also a lot, of, a lot of fellowship. A lot of guys are living around uh, the Westminster Abbey, its environs, the town of Westminster. So, you know, there's, there's a, a, on a good day, it's going to feel a little bit like a Banner Truth Conference where, where you get to fellowship with friends, kind of walk around the Abbey and talk. But there are lots of tense moments, uh, lots of moments where, where, where people worked hard to be brothers uh, because they, they were really disagreeing on some important points. You know, the Congregationalists believed that uh, for Jesus to return, uh, that, the, that the church needed to be congregational in its polity. Now, if you think that, that kind of ups the ante on the seriousness of the discussion. Uh, not only did the Jews need to be saved, according to the Congregationalists, uh, but, you know, the Church of England needs to be congregational in its polity. Well, wow, that's, uh, that's intense. Um, yeah, as you've kind of mentioned throughout our little conversation here, there's a diversity of views within the Assembly of Independents, uh, Episcopalians, Puritans, uh, and others just kind of compose of this uh, Assembly. And clearly, there had you know clearly there's disagreement. So, how did these men resolve those disagreements, and what can we learn in our current day as we continue to talk about theology and doctrine? Uh, yeah, in our, in our own disagreements. Yeah, well, I don't know how many I don't know how many easily transferable lessons there are, but let me give this a go. So, so Puritans come in different packages, right? You've got Puritans who are Congregationalists or Independents. You got Puritans who are Presbyterians. That's the larger number. You have Puritans who are kind of a hodgepodge, sort of modified Episcopalians. Um, uh, and, and, and then, you know, on top of all of that, you could be a Presbyterian, but, the, but then there's different ways, or, or Congregationalist, but then the way in which you think about the, the, the relationship between the church and the state can vary as well. And so if you really think that the church is sort of a branch of the state, is to be kind of run by the state, then you can be an Erastian Congregationalist or an Erastian Presbyterian. So I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but there's, as it were, an ecclesiological overlay, what's the relationship between the church and the state, that can be kind of put on top of these different church polities. Mm -hmm. So that's complicated. Um, uh, I, I, I think the, the Westminster Assembly uh, in the midst of all of its disagreements, does offer moments of stunning humility. You know, one of the leaders of the assembly says at one point, concedo omnia, I concede everything. Uh, he, he realizes he's wrong and changes his mind. You see that from time to time uh, in reading the minutes of the assembly, because you're a bit of like a fly on the wall to a theological conversation. That's pretty interesting. Uh, you, you also see men uh, referring to each other very deliberately as brother. 
uh, again and again. And, you know, actually the, the, the conversations in the assembly are sometimes so intense that I thought for a number of years that when George Gillespie refers to Philip Nye as his dear brother or as his brother, I thought he was being sarcastic. Turns out they really were good friends. Um, and, 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 and that was really kind of remarkable to finally figure out, wait a minute, this isn't sarcasm. This is his taking a moment to show even more respect precisely because of that disagreement. And, and then here's one more example. The assembly examined thousands of ministers and their first rule, both for themselves and later for presbyteries, was that they deal with men that they're examining in a brotherly way. Uh, what an interesting rule. If you've ever been in a presbytery where, where men are trying to show off as they're asking questions, they're trying to stump the candidate, uh, they're trying to play sort of teacher to someone whom they're pretending is really their student, that, that's distasteful. It's discouraging. It doesn't honor Christ. And this is not a new problem. And so the assembly began by saying, when you're examining somebody, treat them respectfully. Honor him as a brother. What a great opening rule. So I like the tone and the tenor of that. Yes, sometimes debates erupted into the, the public sphere. Yes, sometimes people uh, got on each other's cases. Um, but there's, there's something to learn there in the midst of disagreement. Yeah, you just shared couple of good stories about the members and how they were. Uh, is there any other good stories for our listeners to, to know? You know, mentioned George Gillespie there. Uh, any other stories just to. Yeah, there's, 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 there's lots of interesting uh, moments. Um, there, there's, there's a humorous moment uh, where uh, people are excited that the Scottish commissioners are, have arrived uh, and the prolocutor gives a speech, and then his his second in command gives a speech, and then some other guy get, gets up and sort of gives a speech on behalf of the Westminster Assembly. And one of the the divines is there is sort of kind of irritated by this. You know, he writes in his journal, you know, and then so and so gave a speech, even though he wasn't sort of asked to do so by anybody. So you see these moments of of enthusiasm and moments of irritation. Uh, every morning at eight o'clock, a, a person who was being examined for the ministry or most mornings would give a sermon. And it's kind of funny seeing comments about the sermon sometimes, you, you, you know, where someone thinks it's a particularly bad sermon and they make a grumpy comment. Uh, but not everything's grumpy. Um, uh, yeah, once, once you begin uh, reading the minutes of the assembly, you, you, you can see who the the Westminster Divines really respect. For example, a man named John Aerosmith, who is witty and charming and finds a way to kind of get to people's hearts and challenge them in his sermons, just before the assembly, just in front of his friends, no other audience. Um, and it's, it's just really, really interesting seeing the kind of man uh, who can influence them. John Aerosmith you know, ironically, has, an, has one of his eyes shot out with an arrow, uh, and his name's Aerosmith. Why do I find that interesting? Um, you know, so, 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 so here's a man who has this disability. Uh, it would be really unpleasant to have a fake eye in the 17th century, um, and, and he's a great scholar. 
He's a persuasive preacher. And you get to kind of overhear some of the ways in which he encourages his brothers uh, in the assembly. Um, you, you have other things. You know, the assembly makes rules about laughing at people who have bad speeches. Um, you know, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, you're not allowed to kind of pretend you're going to the restroom, just leave for the day. Uh, that's a bit of a problem sometimes. Uh, you have people who are reading newspapers, uh, who are not, or news books, as they call them. Uh, so, so, you know, there, there are people, as it were, kind of checking their email when they're supposed to be, you know, paying attention to the- It was the Twitter equivalent of yeah, the, the Westminster Twitter, Assembly. Twitter and you got people having side conversations. Hey, you wrote a book. It's too long. Can you shorten it? No, but if you like it, you can shorten it and so on. Uh, so there's all kinds of things going on in the room, a subset of which we're not supposed to be going on in the room in the middle of all these conversations. You have little tensions sometimes. You know, the, the parliament's too cheap to pay people for being there like they said they would. Then on top of that, they don't pay for their fuel. Uh, and, and the assembly's meeting in the kind of the middle of a kind of mini ice age or near the tail end of a mini ice age. It's really cold. And then the lords come in uh, and, and they sit in front of the fire, uh, you know, blocking the heat. This is not fair. Uh, you, you know, the people are not being paid. Then they have to pay for their own fuel. And then members of parliament come in and soak up all the, all, all the heat. And there's all kinds of little sort of interesting tensions going on. Uh, you, you, have, you have people who weren't getting along before the assembly, uh, who are having public pamphlet wars with each other, who end up sitting together and learning how to get along. Uh, there's, 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 there's lots of sort of charming moments uh, and uh, you can kind of piece together a subset of them uh, using the minutes of the assembly. When I think of the assembly, I think of that scene in the Fellowship of the Ring where they meet in Rivendell and then like all the, all the dwarves come and then there's the men and that's kind of, you know, like what the Scottish commissioners coming to Westminster might have looked like, but I could be wrong there. Well, that's certainly how Scottish historians have, have kind of uh, portrayed things. Yeah, they, they, they're sometimes sort of treated as though they're kind of a SWAT team, kind of helicoptered in from Scotland uh, and sort of dropped in the Abbey to help these hapless English Presbyterians. As it turns out, the English had some pretty phenomenal theologians who are easily able to kind of hold their own. Uh, nonetheless, they were, they were a huge asset. But, but not, not, not quite sort of the, the, the deliverers of the assembly uh, that loyal Scottish historians have sometimes made them out to be. And, and you know, there's a strong loyalty to, to, to Scottish history because it's the Scots who export Presbyterianism uh, to the New World uh, and beyond. And so both American and Scottish historiography of the assembly has tended to lionize the Scots in a way that, that perhaps exaggerates their place. That said, Samuel Rutherford is a pretty phenomenal theologian, um, and uh, I'm really delighted to be a part of, a, of a, uh, an editorial team pulling together a 13-volume set of Rutherford's works, including translations of all his Latin works, including the first publications of a lot of manuscripts that's going on right now. Very exciting. And George Gillespie is, is truly a phenomenal thinker, really on the ball, a very able speaker, witty, charming um, and persuasive. So they deserve their day in the sun. Uh, but, but nonetheless, not, a, not, not to the point where they are eclipsing other people like Aerosmith and Tuckney and others. Very good. So no battle axes, but still they, they carry, you know, tremendous theological 
power. So last question uh, for our day, Dr. Van Dixhorn, Shorter Catechism. Can you describe for us the original purpose of the Shorter Catechism? There's a lot of talk about, hey, this was originally intended for children, uh, but did it have a broader purpose than that? Tell us about the original intent of the Shorter Catechism and its composition. Yeah, so so the Westminster Assembly originally tried to make kind of one all-purpose catechism. Uh, It just became too difficult. And it's actually Samuel Rutherford who announced at one point, it's too difficult to serve milk and meat in the same dish. Uh, and and the, the, so the shorter catechism is, is, is the milky side uh, of the assembly's catechetical efforts. This is meant for newer Christians, for people who are just kind of plugging into the Christian faith and want to get deeper. It is intended for children, but that doesn't mean that people found it easy. So at the first reception, of the Shorter Catechism. It was received enthusiastically, but almost immediately manuals came out to help people learn how to use it. And those manuals acknowledged this was going to be a bit of a climb uh, for some people. So, you know, uh, I think it was William Lyford offered a manual saying, okay, so maybe the first time you go through it, you just kind of read it. And then you go through and you explain the difficult words. Uh, and, And then you try and understand what people you know, can, can, can kind of gather from this and then you get a memorizing and so on. So, so kind of step-by-step step. John Wallace, who was a, who was an assistant to the scribes at the Westminster assembly published a guide to the shorter and it takes a, a different kind of angle, which is very creative actually. Uh, and he turns it into kind of a, a sort of a, a series of true false questions. So what's the chief end of man? Is it to do whatever you want? And then the margin says like, no, uh, is it to sort of please yourself in life or whatever? I forget what his exact questions are. And the margin says, no. Is it to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? And the margin says, yes. Uh, now you can, I, I, I laughed at it the first time I saw it, but you know, I, I, at the time I had younger children. Oh, this is brilliant, actually. See if they can recognize the truth before I begin to ask them to recall the truth. Even before I get them to memorize, let me just see if they can identify what's true. And this was great. It was it was affirming. It was useful. They could learn how to distinguish truth from error. And and I I, I think something like that is still really useful uh, for for newer Christians for younger children. It's a great way of entering the catechism. Well, as far as resources that uh, we usually ask our guests resources that they would recommend, I know that you have probably, and I say probably, have read, uh, certainly read the minutes, the original minutes of the Westminster Assembly, that uh, voluminous seven volumes of uh, the minutes and probably, because those just got published, right? A couple of years ago? Yeah. So you sound like an old man here, a, a couple in the sense of like 10 years ago. Yeah. Am, am I right? Actually, now I'm not sure. I think it was 2012. So nine years ago. You know, so so that's telescoping time a little bit. I I, I think, uh, yeah. I don't I don't urge anyone to rush out and buy the minutes and papers of the Westminster Assemblies in order to understand our confessional standards. They're they're pretty difficult to manage, uh, and 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 the price point is not accessible. You know, you're going to have to you know rent out some children for child labor or put a second mortgage on your car or something like that in order to afford the set. So it's it's depressingly expensive. Uh, although you can kind of rent them online. Uh, for like, I don't know, 40 bucks or something for three months. Uh, so if you had a, if, if a student has a term paper and really feels like they need to use it, 
and don't want to wait for interlibrary loan, uh, it's 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 possible to do this. Um, uh, so, so if I'm recommending practical resources, I like Francis Beatty's confession or commentary on the Westminster Confession, but but he integrates uh, the, the larger and shorter. It's not just because he's a Canadian who moved to America. He really does do a good job. Um, I, I think I think that uh, uh, A.A. Hodge and Shaw do a nice job of summarizing main doctrinal points, but sometimes they, they are uh, they, they miss a point of a paragraph. Uh, I can think of chapter eight in the confession. Uh, you know, there's there's nuances there in terms of Christology that they don't get, nor does Williamson. Uh, let me see. Uh, I, I, I actually uh, wrote a commentary myself on the confession that tries to explain uh, the theology of the confession itself from the ground up, uh, often usually deploying the scripture proofs offered by the assembly uh, that, 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 that I hope will allow uh, church members and officers to kind of understand why we believe what we believe uh, and, and why we ought to celebrate this and put it into action. Uh, in terms of the shorter catechism, I still love Thomas Watson's uh, three volumes, The Body of Divinity, Ten Commandments, and Lord's Prayer. I think Watson's mother told him that you don't have a legitimate sentence if it doesn't contain a metaphor. Uh, so, so, so in order to sort of uphold this grammatical rule that every sentence, probably every paragraph at least, needs to have some color in it, some, some illustrations and lively languages, it's just great. You need to adapt some things, jettison some illustrations. But if you ever want to teach on the shorter catechism, you've got to use Watson. It's just filled with all kinds of ideas and ways of communicating things that are just brilliant. Uh, the larger catechism... Uh, uh, this, this, we, we get into tougher, tougher, uh, 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 rougher waters here. There's, there's just not a lot. There's Ridgely. Ridgely has a, two massive volumes on the larger catechism, which really takes the larger catechism. It does reflect on it to some degree, but then, but then kind of launches into long doctrinal discussions. There's a short work by Voss. And in terms of background, the best two volumes so far are John Bauer on the larger catechism and John Bauer on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Invaluable volumes, well-written, great introductions. And we would, again, just remind all of our listeners that this is the man that everybody has been recommending, Chad Van Dixhorn's Confessing the Faith, and proof positive that he also found a good wife. He who finds a, a good wife finds a good thing. Emily Van Dixhorn uh, wrote the study guide for this book, Confessing the faith, so we would recommend if you're thinking of going through the or the Westminster Confession of Faith with friends, this is a wonderful resource to get the ball rolling and to get conversation flowing between you and your Westminster uh, Westminsterian nerd friends. So we would highly recommend it. And Dr. Van Dixhorn, we have so enjoyed the time with you today. And I don't know, maybe one day it. I'll say this. If you come back on the podcast a second time, then definitely you inch ahead of Carl Truman. I will say that. <laughs> well, uh, certainly, certainly, Carl and I will have to sort of talk about this unnecessary, uh, frivolous, but enjoyable rivalry. Uh, and thank you for the shout out for Emily's wonderful book uh, and, uh, and for this time together. I much enjoyed it. Well, we appreciate you and appreciate all of our listeners as usual. 
please pass this episode along, leave us some reviews, and uh, we look forward to talking to you next time. Till then, keep it short. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit of God, three in one, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be.